This is episode 407 with Matt Fraser and Robert Cheek. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. We have just had Leo, who's my 15-year-old bonus son, with us for a month. And when he's with us, I love fueling his body with as much nutrients as I possibly can. This is why I love Athletic Greens. Now, every morning when he walks out into the kitchen, there's a large glass of room temperature filtered water with his Athletic Greens, which is his daily all-in-one superfood powder in it. He loves it and I love knowing that not only is he starting his day with hydration and green goodness, but that he's getting any vitamins and minerals that he may be missing in his diet. Best of all, he loves the taste, which is so awesome. And just one scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase your energy and focus, aid with digestion and support a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products, which is perfect for anyone. Another thing I love about Athletic Greens is they continue to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 iterations over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure that their customers continue to receive the highest quality and the best daily nutritional habit on the planet. And it's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system by offering you a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase, which means you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D ever again. All you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com forward slash Melissa to get your free year supply of vitamin D and your five free travel packs today. How awesome is that? Hey guys, welcome back to another episode 
of The Melissa Ambrosini Show. I am your guest host for this week. My name is Nick Broadhurst and I am Melissa Ambrosini's husband. And as I have been saying these past few episodes, Melissa is currently on maternity leave, taking care of our little baby girl, beautiful little Bambi. Ah, she's so divine, far out. And I'm stepping in to share with you some of the things that I love that have affected my life and Melissa's life in a huge way. If you checked out the previous episode, 406 with Simon Hill, we dived into high carb versus low carb for weight loss with very much a plant-based slant in that episode. And today we're going to continue that train of thought in the world of plant-based nutrition. And why am I focusing on plant-based nutrition? Well, it's changed my life and Melissa's and we are raising a beautiful plant-based baby. And I am not going to scream from the rooftops that you must be plant-based. No, you don't have to be plant-based. But plant-centric, or a diet that is heavily focused on plants, is something I'm very passionate about. And today's guests are really, really exciting for me because I've actually been following them for some time. Matt Fraser is a vegan ultramarathoner. He's an author, an entrepreneur, best known as the founder of No Meat Athlete Movement and host of the No Meat Athlete radio podcast. Along with No Meat Athlete, Matt has also co-founded Complement, which is this super epic, very clean supplement company, and another website called 8020plants.com. These are two companies whose mission it is to grow the plant-based movement and help vegans thrive. Super cool stuff. And I've often in the past referred to No Meat Athlete on a whole bunch of different questions I had in my own journey, going from more of a paleo style diet into a plant-based diet. And Robert Cheek is an American champion bodybuilder. He's a motivational speaker and author of many, many books on the topic of plant-based performance and bodybuilding. He's a vegan activist and spends his time touring the United States and the world for speaking engagements and book promotions. And he also runs the site veganbodybuilding.com. But the reason we're speaking to both of these guys today together is because they recently released their New York Times best-selling book called The Plant-Based Athlete, A Game-Changing Approach to Peak Performance. Now, let's just say that you're not an athlete, which to be honest, very few people would call themselves an athlete. But my mission for this episode is to change the definition of athlete, to change the way you view yourself, the way you view your body. Because I've often said for many, many years now, why not all of us treat our bodies like we are professional athletes. Are we not worthy of that? Yes, we are. All of us are worthy of treating our bodies like a professional athlete would do. And there is no better way to treat our bodies than to do that with a whole foods plant-based approach, which is tuned towards peak performance. And that's what this book is all about. I love this book so much because it is jam-packed full of really intimate, close stories from world-class Olympic gold medalists, world champions, a whole different array of sports from powerlifting to bodybuilding to ultramarathon to figure skating, a whole bunch of different disciplines in here, which makes it interesting because you get to see what their days look like, what they're eating. It's really, really fascinating stuff. But of course, they go into the science around plant-based nutrition and why it is so effective when it comes to performance. And at the beginning of this episode, I point out that these are athletes whose success is not in spite of their diet. In many cases, it's because of their diet. And we highlight a couple of amazing stories. And I really wanted to get this point across because 
doesn't matter where you're at right now, whether you're, okay, like me, I feel like I'm a fit, healthy male, but I have my own goals, whether it's aesthetically and also performance-based, or whether you're someone who is really a long, long way away from even thinking of yourself as an athlete. But when you hear these stories, my hope is that it will inspire you to start taking some steps to radically transform your life. So this is not an episode for athletes. This is an episode for you, my friend. There is so much goodness in this episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. And it was actually a long episode. We planned on 60, 75 minutes, but it went for, I think, about two hours because we were just having a great time. And the information was so inspiring and so epic. I just wanted to keep going. And these guys were having a great time. So I really hope you enjoyed this chat with Robert Cheek and Matt Fraser. Matt, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having us. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I've, I've actually followed you guys for quite a long time. And there's some really cool stuff we're going to dive into today. But I do want to start with the most important question of the day. And that is, what did you each have for breakfast this morning? Man, I'm trying to even remember what I had for breakfast. I'm pretty sure I started with some fruit. Robert, you can go ahead. I'll think of what I, I, I literally can't think of what I had. Yeah, it's nighttime where you are. You know, I start with fruit in the morning, blueberries, bananas, cherries. It's cherry season right now where I live. And, you know, I just love to start the day with that. I also had some some tea and and some water. So I start, I start off pretty light, to be honest. You know, fruit is the best thing for me, the antioxidant-rich, vitamin-mineral-rich food that, that gets my day going. I remember what it was. I started with some coffee, and then I didn't eat anything until I had some sort of interview or something at 11. 11 a.m. So almost lunchtime. And I had a couple uh, like tangerines and some, a handful of cashews. So not much of a breakfast, but. So big lunch for you, Matt. Big lunch. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so being a plant-based athlete is not super complex by the sounds of it. <laughs> it's really not. I mean, if, I, I think it can be when you start out, but the longer I've done this, the more I've started to realize that a meal like two oranges and a handful of nuts is like, that's a really great meal for me. Cause that's, that's two really good inputs that are full of nutrition, complete packages in themselves. You know, I don't need like a, a traditional square meal, uh, you know, so it, it gets easier as, as you get used to it and kind of get gain confidence that, that those kinds of foods, which may not be a traditional breakfast, really provide a lot of nutrition. And I was just going to say, you know, today was fruit, but breakfast could be pancakes, you know, it could be oatmeal, it could be green smoothie, it could be so many of these other things. And that's what makes it so versatile. So it depends based on the time of year, it could be a, you know, breakfast burrito, something like that. So it's really easy, really accessible, really versatile thing. Don't want people to think, you know, even as a bodybuilder or endurance runner, we just, we, you know, we just eat fruit and, and berries, uh, plenty of other calorie dense foods in there as well. Mm, and just to be clear, who we're speaking to, because we're speaking to Robert Cheek and Matt Fraser, but so you identify the voices of who is who. That was Robert. Robert is the bodybuilder. Matt, endurance athlete. So just to be clear on that for the listener. And I had Simon Hill on the show recently. He's a very good close friend of mine. And I said to him, it's interesting when I eat fruit on its own, maybe some avocado for breakfast, compared to putting it all into a smoothie and blending it, the way that it digests is so much better when I eat it separately. And I've come to realize the more I go down this plant-based route that the simpler the meal, the better you feel. That's, that's kind of my new motto. And I try to remember that, not to overcomplicate things. And that if you do just end up having some bananas and some cashews, like you're in pretty good stead. You, know, you don't have to make it overly complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're making a smoothie, usually that's going to have at least three or four different things in it. And often when you eat fruit on its own, you're not eating three or four fruits at the same time. You're eating one fruit and no 
nuts or seeds or anything else, like just the fruit. And you know, that's probably how our body's meant to eat, right? That's probably how we evolved to eat was you find an orange tree and you eat a bunch of oranges until you're full. And then, and then you move on to the next meal whenever that comes along. And so, you know, in that way, your body only recruits the digestive enzymes that are needed for that particular food instead of things that might conflict. And it makes sense that, that it would, you'd feel more energetic in the, in the hours shortly after eating if you're eating just a few foods instead of a bunch. Yeah, it's a good point because if you think about, if you went back, say, 100,000 years, we don't sit down with, oh, here's some bison and some sweet potato and some rice and, you know, some sort of corn or wheat wrap and then some beans. Like, that just wasn't happening, right? And you're right, we probably walked past some thing that was flourishing and just gorged on that particular thing and tried to save it for later. And so food combining is something which obviously has become super important because we've had We've got so much choice, but that doesn't mean we need to always have the choice in one meal. So anyway, slight tangent, but <laughs> I, I think that's it's interesting point to make. So I really want to dive into your latest book, The Plant-Based Athlete, which I've just finished reading this morning. I, I mentioned before on the call, at 6 a.m. I got up and just finished the last chapter, went through the recipes, and you've done such an amazing job with this book because... I've been plant-based for a few years and before that I was largely plant-based. And what I like about reading these books, even though I sort of know a lot of this stuff, but the reason I keep reading it is because it gives me so much confidence in the path that I've taken. But for people who are new, I think what's amazing about your book is that the success stories of the athletes in this book is not, not in spite of their diet. In many cases, it's because of their diet. And of course, you know, their determination, their commitment, all those sorts of things. But they've all noticed significant increases by switching to plant-based or have all been plant-based from birth as well. So I wanted to just acknowledge how good this book is because for me personally, it's another notch in my belt of confidence of the path that I've taken. And we don't know each other personally, but to give you a bit of a background, I'm a musician. And most musicians, you think studios, you know, sitting in the dark, not getting a lot of exercise, but I'm the complete opposite. Like I, I like feeling strong, mobile. I mean, to be honest, as a man, I like to be ripped. Like I want to be ripped. I feel good when I'm in my absolute best physical shape and I write the best music when I feel good about myself. And one of the things I've said to myself and to my friends is, why can't I treat myself like a professional athlete? I mean, I'm not but why don't I treat myself? In fact, why don't we all treat ourselves like professional athletes? And I think for anyone listening to this, I really encourage them to go and read your book, even if you're not an athlete, because it has so much in there to inspire you to just be a better version of yourself. And so I just wanted to give you a bit of an acknowledgement of how good a job you've done. Such an easy read too, just fly through it because it's story-based, you know, and I think the stories make it fly. And I really want to dive into some of those stories today, but let's start with your stories. So Robert, talk us through your journey from skinny Robert to ripped Robert. And what was that journey like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a long journey. You know, I came on this path uh, more than 25 years ago, back in 1995, when I, I was growing up on a farm and was a five sport athlete in high school. And, you know, I, I had farm animals as, as pets, you know, cows, baby calves as pets with first names, just like a dog or a cat. And I raised chickens and I raised rabbits and I raised all these different animals. And, and I would take them to the, the auction and sell them at the county fair and make some money, you know, as a young uh, 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year old, that was kind of exciting. 
And then my older sister was vegetarian, you know, whatever that was, whatever that meant. And then she became vegan. And in 1995, she organized an animal rights week at our high school. It was this week long convention, basically, you know, very small, of course, you know, held during off periods or during lunch and where you could go listen to speakers and watch videos of factory farming and animal testing and, and talk to people and read literature and have conversations about this topic of animal rights. And I thought, you know what, out of respect for my sister, I'll just, I'll go vegan for a week. You know, we'll just go give this thing a try. Stop going to the fast food restaurants that I was going to literally every single day. I was eating chicken sandwiches was my favorite and hanging out with my friends and doing that on lunch break in high school. And so I I did. And I, and, and as I watched those videos of factory farming and animal testing, I, it just really resonated with me. And I connected with the farm animals that I had at home with first names that were, that I was, I was showing at the county fair and then taken to the auction. And selling to be turned into someone else's meal. And I thought, you know, that doesn't sit with me very well. But at the same time, I barely weighed over a hundred pounds when I, you know, when I became vegan, I I weighed 120 pounds, but I had aspirations of being bigger and stronger growing up as a kid in the eighties and watching He-Man and and pro wrestling and Captain Planet and all this stuff. I, I had these aspirations of getting bigger and stronger, but I asked that question, you know, the question that many people ask, can I do it? can I get bigger and stronger without animal protein? And, you know, I wasn't sure because I grew up with, obviously I grew up on a farm and I grew up in a farming community and my, my, both my parents came from farming communities. And I grew up in this era of milk does a body good and beef is what's for dinner. And this is what makes you a strong person. It's consuming, especially meat and milk, but, you know, add in eggs and whatever else you like. And so I asked that question to my sister who had been doing this for a few years before me. I said, you know, can I get bigger and stronger without eating animal protein? She said, Robert, we don't need meat, milk, and eggs. We need the nutrition that's commonly associated with those foods. But as it turns out, those aren't even the best foods for the sources of nutrition that we're seeking. You know, whether it's protein or whether it's calcium or whatever it is that we are seeking from those foods, it's not even the best source. It comes with all this extra baggage. It comes with dietary cholesterol. It comes with saturated fat. It comes with excess calories. It comes as a, you know, these days it classified as a class one or class two A carcinogen. It comes with potentially artery clogging material that builds up plaque and, and damages blood vessels. Like you can do better than that. And so I decided I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and go that route and give it a try. And so I did, and I stuck with it. And two years later, I was organizing the Animal Rights Week at our high school. I was doing the interviews. I was interviewing people and talking to people and hosting the event and giving presentations in school. And I was changing the way that we did things at our high school, whether when we would order sports equipment, we would order synthetic leather rather than than animal hide for footballs, basketballs, other sports equipment. I was involved in all of that stuff in my school. And then I went on to be a collegiate athlete. So obviously, you know, years into my plant-based diet, it did not slow me down from competing at a high level, but I was a long distance runner. I wasn't a weightlifter or bodybuilder, but then I just checked in right here. You know, Robert, what do you really want to do? You know, like, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? You know, I'm in age 19, 20 now. And I realized, you know what? I want to pursue this getting more muscular, getting bigger and stronger. And honestly, the reason behind that was I want to show people, again, this is like the late 1990s, you know, I want to show people that I can build muscle without eating animals and that could inspire other people to do the same. And in turn, that would change the world around me, that would save animals around me. And so that's what I did. And I went on to lift weights, I became a bodybuilder, became a champion vegan bodybuilder, became a champion vegan bodybuilder again. 
I went on to put on 100 pounds in total from 120 to 220 pounds. And uh, now I've written a series of books on the subject and I've been doing it for a quarter century. And so hopefully, hopefully I've, I've helped contribute to putting that question to rest. Not where do you get your protein, but how, how do you get enough protein on a plant-based diet? Well, you know, I've been a champion bodybuilder. I've been a champion runner, been a champion athlete doing it for so many years now, a couple decades, and then had the opportunity to partner with Matt and write this book and tell so many other stories. But that is part of my story. That's such a great story, you know, especially at such a young age to connect to something so important and to find purpose at such a young age is it's pretty special, really. You know, I can only hope, I've got a 15-year-old son, and I hope for him that he connects to something so deeply because it's obviously impacted your life in a, in a very positive way and therefore many other people's lives. And we will circle back on, I really want to go into some of these myths. I think we need to dispel some myths and protein is obviously one of the big ones. But let's hear from you, Matt, because again, like you've been influential for me as well, because if you start searching anything in relation to plant-based diets or vegan diets, athletic performance, then inevitably your podcast, your blog, The No Meat Athlete comes up. You've done an amazing job. And actually, maybe 12 months ago, I came across your other company, Compliment. And I think at the time you weren't shipping to Australia. I can't remember. I know you do now. And I, for some reason, I just, you know, I didn't go ahead with it, but I looked at them this morning again, just to refresh my memory and what you were making. And man, if I made a supplement range, <laughs> I'd be tempted just to rip off your range. It is, it is really good. So hats off to you for that. But tell us, tell us your story. How did you become, well, I guess, no meat athlete? How did that come about? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and we can certainly get you some, uh, some compliment to try out and, and you would not be the first to rip it off. It's, it's been done a few times now. So, <laughs> which, which is, I guess, flattery in a way. So. <laughs> yeah, so my, my story is kind of like Robert's in that I started with an ethical, personal decision to become vegetarian. And for me, it came at kind of an inconvenient time. I had been, uh, I guess I was maybe 27 or 26, and I'd been training to qualify for the Boston Marathon, which in the US, you know, is kind of a, a prestigious marathon to get in. It's not, you don't have to be a pro athlete to get into it, but for an average runner, you're not going to get into it unless you really work hard. And so I, when I ran my first marathon in college, because I had never been really into fitness or anything other than just youth sports. But in college, I got into fitness and some friends and I decided we were going to run a marathon. And we said, well, we're not just going to run a marathon. And we weren't runners, by the way. We didn't know anything about this. But we were like, let's run a marathon. We can do it. Why not? We're young. We're, we're in shape now. But let's also qualify for Boston when we do that first marathon, which meant running in the time of three hours and 10 minutes, about seven minutes and 15 minutes per mile or so. We got to the marathon start line and we finished that marathon. The problem was it took us four hours and 53 minutes which was 103 minutes too slow, four minutes per mile too slow. But what it did was like that moment failing that, that spectacularly, it lit a fire in me like had never been lit for anything else in my life. So I didn't discover that kind of passion until age whatever I was now, 20, 21 or something in college. But it was like, wow, like if I just ran a marathon and I was still four minutes per mile slower than my goal, like what would it take for me to be that? Like, how, like what kind of shape would I need to be in? What would my mindset my discipline, all that stuff. Like, how, what would that need to look like for me to run this kind of marathon time? And that vision got me really excited. So I, I set to work trying to figure out a way to get myself into the Boston Marathon. And I had taken, this was about six years later, I had taken 90 minutes off of my time, still had 13 minutes to go or something like that. And that's when I got this urge that I had I'd gotten a dog after college and I had decided that I did not understand how I could be eating pigs and things like this for breakfast when this dog was like my best friend and I loved it. And like emotionally and mentally and, you know, the feelings like a dog is so similar to a pig. And it was like, how, how could this possibly 
make sense that I would eat this animal and love this animal. And so I started to shift things and I was afraid, I was worried about the protein thing. So I very slowly, gradually eased in, stopped eating pigs and cows first. You know, they had four legs. It seemed like to me, the smartest animals. And I just went with that for a while, but then eventually wasn't satisfied. And eventually said, I'm going to cut out the birds as well, cut out the two-legged animals now and be left with just fish. And eventually I got to the point where I cut that out. And this is when I started my, my website because I was looking around for information. Like I was sure this was going to mess up my marathon training because back then, this was 2009, there just wasn't a lot of information. And when I looked around about looking for something that would give me confidence, like you talked about, something that would say, yes, this, is, this can be done. And there's, there are people who do it because there were some people who did it. Scott Jurek was, was already doing it, one of the best ultra runners in the world. But it just wasn't, the info wasn't out there. The internet wasn't what it is now. So I couldn't find anything that was helpful. It all had a very preachy kind of agenda. I don't know, an angle that did not appeal to me at all. And I said, well, I'm going to just start my own thing. I'm going to call it No Meat Athlete because it sounds good, rhymes, sounds like a friendly site. And I'm going to like, just be honest because I don't have any huge, I'm not not invested in this vegetarian thing yet. I just don't want to eat animals anymore. So I said, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to base things in science and I'm going to tell people how it works. So that started off and then the great, awesome, amazing surprise is that it worked exceedingly well for my marathon training. And that summer I had the very best training summer I'd ever had. Harder workouts, more workouts, everything better. Did not get hurt, which had always happened before that. And I ended up taking that, those final, I think it was 10 or 11 minutes off my marathon time, got myself into Boston. And, uh, you know, from there, the site kind of had gained a little following. And once I qualified for Boston, it was like, people wanted to know, then it was like no longer an experiment. Then it was like, people wanted to know how, how did you do it? And what are you doing? And and it just sort of changed then. And then I started to meet people like Robert, like Scott Jurek, like Brendan Brazier. And I realized that there are some people out there who are choosing this diet, not just because it ethically feels good and then succeeding in spite of it, like you said, but there are people who are choosing it because of what it does for them, that it actually helps them perform better. And I had now experienced that firsthand. And I also realized that these guys aren't just being vegetarian, they're being vegan. That meaning they're not eating any animal products. So as I was starting now to get into ultra running, having succeeded at one goal, and I said, wow, like what if I could run 50 miles or 100 miles like Scott Jurek does? I started to realize that going vegan could could become a huge help in that rather than a hindrance. And so I started to learn from Scott Jurek and Brenda Brazier and Rich Roll. And it just worked so well. I eventually ran a bunch of 50 milers, 100 miler, 100% vegan at this point. And uh, my running life before going plant-based was injuries all the time, injuries, setbacks, stopping for three or six months because I'd you know, be deflated and, and needing to recover. And then after that, the injuries just, just went away. Doesn't mean that the diet caused that. A lot of other factors could have contributed for sure that I was getting more experience as a runner, but it, it sure just felt like a night and day difference. Um, so anyway, so that, that was all 2013, 14 when, when I was running these long races. And since then, it's really been about growing this community, trying to, you know, our community is really great. And we even have some Australian running groups, in fact, and all of them have this mindset, the same thing I did, this like welcoming attitude where it's like, start where you are. You don't have to go 100% vegan overnight. You don't have to be an athlete. I'm still going to call you an athlete, but you don't have to call yourself that. And I've just have loved that welcoming attitude that for me was like so important. And that's why I started the site because I couldn't find it anywhere else. But uh, yeah, that so then, you know, got into other parts of being an entrepreneur and started the supplement line, compliment and things like that. And then 2018, Robert came along. I had known him now for for something like, eight years maybe. And he said, I have an idea for a book. I have an idea for us. Like we've written our stories in books and so have all those names I mentioned. They've all written their stories in books, but no one has yet written the book, the one that has all the stories of not just, not just that athlete, but the top athletes, the Olympians, the elites, the pros, like what are they all doing? Cause now the movement is at that point where it's happening. Any sport you want, you can find someone at the top of it who's eating a plant-based diet. 
and often for what it does for their performance. So we wrote that book, spent some, spent a couple of years doing it, and and here we are. Mm. Yeah, you really have done a great job. And you know, I remember back in two thousand and what have been two thousand and eleven, maybe, where I first picked up one of Brendan Brazier's books. And at the time, still eating a largely paleo diet, actually. And I just wasn't, I wasn't quite there yet. You know, I read the book and I got, there's something about the way that Brendan shared that information that got me so excited. Like every recipe just felt like you were, it was from like an alien planet or something. Like it just felt so exciting, you know, because it's like gelatinized maca and like all these cool things, but also very simple things, just like cheese seeds and coconut milk and stuff. But the amount of information that's available to us now is so extraordinary because even in the past few years since I went plant-based, fully plant-based, I've noticed just a huge shift. There's obviously been a turning point. I would say definitely the documentary, The Game Changers, which is arguably the most watched documentary of all time now, uh, which is a huge, a huge feat, right? And it shows the interest. But I can't imagine back in like the late 90s trying to navigate this because I mean, what was it like, tofurkey? And like, you just probably had all these things in your head about, you know, hippies and all this sort of stuff. I think we've, we're very lucky, right, to be in this era with this information available to us. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of what it was like. I mean, especially in 1995, most people did not have the internet at home. I didn't have the internet for another year or two in 96, 97. We were learning how to use the internet in high school, you know, after I became vegan. And the resources weren't necessarily there. There were some books, of course, especially out here in the US, Diet for New America by John Robbins and Howard Lyman was doing his thing and Harvey Diamond with Fit for Life. And and there were some athletes like Carl Lewis. I didn't know he was vegan at the time, but he was vegan in 91, 92. I didn't know that either. He was my favorite track and field athlete in the world. Actually, probably my favorite athlete in the world, but I didn't, I didn't even know he was plant-based back then. I was just a big fan of his accomplishments as an amazing Olympian. But you're right. It was it was difficult as far as finding these vegan comfort foods or traditional, you know, traditional dishes. I don't want to say American dishes, but just traditional dishes, whether that's, you know, pizzas or sandwiches or wraps or whatever the case is. Those things weren't really readily available and there weren't a lot of vegan options at restaurants and things like that. But if we go back to our roots, very much like a, a Simon Hill approach or or a Dr. Will B approach, or you know, really our approach and, and Dr. Campbell approach, you know, plant-based foods have been there all along. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains, nuts, and seeds, they've always been there. It's just that when you're, when you're new to a lifestyle, you're looking for like, okay, is there a vegan version of the ice cream or the yogurt or the pizza or the cheese? And back then, I mean, you can imagine how limited it was. Vegan cheeses were, were not melting. They were they were, they were hard to find. There were just a couple of brands. The ice cream, you know, left a lot to be desired. It was, you know, it was mostly rice based and, and just, you know, a handful of brands really. And, and then there was the soy milk or rice milk were really the only two and often over, you know, overpriced for a small little container you'd get at the health food store and, and not, you couldn't find it at a mainstream grocery store. It was just a different world, but I stuck with it because of the reasons why I got into it in the first place. You know, I just didn't want to cause harm to animals anymore. And I realized that even as an athlete, I could get my nutrition from plants and I just had to shift my, my focus and my emphasis on, on eating those foods. 
And so, you know, fast forward to today, and I've toured in Australia multiple times. In fact, it's the, the greatest tours I've ever been on as an author in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide and all the, the vegan festivals there. And I went back to back years, spent six weeks there, absolutely loved it. And I've had the opportunity to tour in Asia and Europe as well in the Caribbean and all throughout North America. And it's just a different world now. It's a completely different climate as far as vegan food and the accessibility and the awareness where one of the things I like to say is that 25 years ago, when I adopted this lifestyle, people were really fearful for my health. They were worried about me. They were concerned about you know whether I would be well and if I could get enough protein, if, even if I could get enough nourishment. And now you fast forward 25 years later, I hear it almost every single day. People say, I know I should be plant-based for my health. I know I should go vegan for the environment. I know I should go vegan for my health. Like I've been able to watch this for 25 years and it's been really rewarding because to care about something so much, to dedicate your life to it, dedicate your personal, professional, your career, your everything, your energy, everything you have to it and wanting to create positive change and then to be able to see some of that unfold is just is just so rewarding. And, and to be part of a book like this, like the plant-based athlete that highlights so many of the wonderful plant-based athletes throughout the world, including some in the game changers like James Wilkes and Dotsie Bausch and Rip Esselstyn and Scott Jurek and so many others, including the great Aussie James Newberry, the uh, four-time Australia's fittest man. You know, it's it's been so cool to see how well it's been received and how it's inspiring people. And we're just grateful for the opportunity to to see the movement come to this point. Mm. Yeah, my own personal experience was interesting because I didn't go plant-based for initially for ethical or for health reasons. I literally woke up one morning and I rolled over and said to my wife, I'm like, babe, I don't know what just happened, but I'm done. I'm done with eating animals. Like it's something literally like a, a switch just flipped and the idea of it all of a sudden repulsed me. Like whereas before I had chicken like literally the day before I was eating chicken. So it was bizarre how it happened. And I, I don't know whether it was like a spiritual <laughs> switch or something happened. I like to think that was some beautiful esoteric message that was delivered to me. But I'm so grateful that it did because about a week later, I was like, okay, let's put this to the test, right? Because I was sort of training. I was doing quite functional sort of fitness training at the time. Um, I didn't have a very much muscle mass on me at the time. And I thought, let's put this to the test. And I reached out to Nimai Delgado. And he said, look, I've got a, a plant-based transformation challenge coming up. You should join that. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So I joined this transformation. And no joke, in like five weeks, I was freaking ripped. I couldn't believe the transformation I had. But what shocked me was just weeks before, there was no way I could have trained the way I was training impossible. I was doing much like I was doing hour-long workouts six days a week and there was no way my body could do that on the previous diet. And the thing that you hear a lot about in your book and also from other people I've heard I've spoken to who have gone plant-based is recovery. And it was the recovery for me that was kind of shocking because I was recovering between sets really well, but also the next day I wasn't sore. And I was going pretty hard. You can imagine Neymar Delgado, full-on bodybuilding splits, like pushing you hard six days a week, which I've learned since that is not the ideal thing for my body type. I train very differently now. But at the time, it was getting me great results, but it was just a bit too much for my nervous system. Nevertheless, the way I was feeling during that training and recovering was kind of shocking to me. I remember saying to my wife, 
coming up. I vividly remember walking up the stairs and going, babe, I don't know what's going on, but I just, I feel like freaking Superman. Like, this is incredible. And we're just talking like a few weeks of being fully plant-based and that was knocking out the last maybe 10% of animal protein or animal products. So one thing I see in your book is it's a common thread. It's almost assumed in the stories that, oh yeah, you know, recovery, of course. You know, it's like this assumed thing now. Why did I feel so good recovering so well? And why do athletes have the same benefits when they switch to plant-based diets? Well, you're absolutely right that uh, the recovery is almost certainly what it is. Like any athlete I've ever talked to, not just in this book, but for 12 years of doing this, they have cited that they recover faster on a plant-based diet. And that's their reason for, for doing it if they're doing it for performance reasons. So the question of why is somewhat less clear, but the best evidence we have suggests that it's because of the high anti-inflammatory compound properties of a plant-based diet. So many of these plant-based foods are rich in anti-inflammatory compounds, whereas so many animal-based foods are the opposite. They're, they're high in, in pro-inflammatory compounds. And when your body needs to repair muscle damage, which is exactly what working out is, it's you, you tear, make small tears in muscles, then they repair somewhat stronger than, than they were before. You can imagine how something that's helping to prevent or quell that inflammation is going to help that repair process speed along. So that's the number one thing. But then there's also things you know, like the nutrient density in plant foods. Plants are relatively low in caloric density, meaning for a given amount of volume in your, like say what it takes to fill up your stomach, that's fewer calories typically with whole plants than it is to fill up your stomach with animal food. So you can feel roughly the same amount of fullness, but consume fewer calories on a plant-based diet, which sounds like it might be a bad thing for athletes. But the flip side of that is that plants are extremely high in nutrient density. So there's something called the aggregate nutrient density index, the Andy score, and a lot of whole foods used to put that on the salad bars. Joel Furman's a big advocate of it. And it's just the idea, it's basically nutrition, nutrients in a food divided by calories gives it its Andy score. So the higher the nutrients, the lower the calories leads to a higher score. And if you look at the highest Andy scores, the thousand pointers and the 990 pointer, it's all leafy greens and plant foods. And you know, the, the meats and animal products don't appear until, you know, down into the, to the hundreds or something. So plants are just extremely rich in nutrients. And again, you can imagine what your body's trying to do. It's trying to do the job of repairing tissue damage. You can imagine that if it has fewer calories that it needs to, you know, burn and use to get through, to get these nutrients, but lots and lots of the resources it needs to actually do the rebuilding, uh, that's going to make for an easier process. One that happens with less energy than if there was lots and lots of calories flooding the system. And, you know, and like the way I'm talking now, this is not really scientific. I don't think this is a theory as to why it works so well, but I would say that's kind of the best evidence we have. And that's the recovery. There's still other reasons why a plant-based diet could benefit performance, like blood vessel dilation, lessening the viscosity of blood. Plants do these things. Beets famously do it for endurance athletes and help you go longer faster. But yeah, but recovery seems to be the, the main event and, and that's the reason why it works so well. Mm. So I want to give the listeners some inspiration. We spoke about at the top of the show, treating ourselves like professional athletes. I believe every single one of us is worthy of, of absolutely treating their bodies like a temple, like a professional athlete. Life is so much richer when you have your health. It just, you know, when you don't have your health, I've been there. My story is having completely lost my health, being bedridden for three years. I know what it's like to lose your health, and I certainly don't want to go back there. And I can safely say that being plant-based has been the greatest lever that I've personally pulled on my health journey. Of course, there's other ones with meditation and the other practices you surround yourself with. But I want to give the listeners some inspiration because your book obviously has a lot of stories from professional athletes, which is amazing. But there's two stories in particular I'd love to hone in on, and maybe you could each tell one of them because this is two people who were not anywhere near professional athletes. One was a smoking college 
not even an athlete, just a girl who went to college and was drinking and smoking, carrying on, and age 26 discovered her sport. And the other person was over 400 pounds, was an NFL, is it NFL, I think? I think it was NFL. Co- college. College football, sorry. And hurt his back. Yeah, if we're talking about Josh. Yeah, that's right. So these are two amazing stories because they're two people who got themselves into a pretty average kind of place with their health and then went on to to really dominate. So I'd love to hear their stories a bit more if you're happy to share those. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it sounds like you're talking about uh, Josh Lajani and Orla Walsh and both uh, fantastic plant-based athletes and and some of my favorite stories in the book as well. And and Orla has one of the, the longest stories, the most detailed stories in the book. And so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start with, we'll start with her. So Orla was uh, kind of a, a partier, you know, drinking, smoking, partier, not an athlete. And, you know, growing up in Ireland and just, I don't know, being your rebellious teenager who was not focused on health whatsoever. And then discovered the sport of cycling and eventually track cycling and has dedicated her life to treating her body like a professional athlete and living like a professional athlete and starting from scratch and building her way up and building her way up all the way to becoming a national champion in her country, in her sport. And and setting records and setting course records and, and breaking her own records and amassing a following of hundreds of thousands of people who cheer her on. And when she shows her this juxtaposition of her before and after where you see, yeah, the like the, the cigarette hanging out of her mouth and the, not a lot of muscle tone whatsoever and, and you know, staying up all night and drinking as a, a hobby, like as a, you know, that was her thing, <laughs> was, was drinking like and partying as much as possible. And then you see the after photos of her with chiseled abs and muscular legs and ripped arms and setting national records as the number one track cyclist in her entire country. It's really, really inspiring. And how she discovered a plant-based diet and realized that she could get this nutritional return on investment. Like if she's going to work this hard, she might as well fuel with the best possible fuel sources and might as well recover with the best possible foods as well. And so a plant-based diet and her elite track cycling went hand in hand. And it's, it's also really, really interesting when you compare her story to someone like Dotsie Bausch as well, because Dotsie also didn't start until age 26 and was also a track cyclist and was also you know, addicted to drugs and had some, you know, suicide attempts and, you know, had a dark past. And Dotsie, you know, went on to become an Olympic silver medalist in track cycling. And she's obviously, you know, 15 or 17 or so years older than Orla. And and I, I just couldn't help after interviewing both of them, including interviewing Dotsie in person at her house and knowing her for years and interviewing Orla through, through multiple emails and really, you know, bringing her story out was to see these similarities as that, you know, as Orla is like, you know, following in the footsteps in a way of, of Dotsie Bausch, who is a great athlete in the Game Changers. And at the same time, she's telling her her own story and, and kind of carving out her own story. And just like Dotsie, she's, you know, one of the oldest people, even now only in her early 30s, she's still one of the oldest people in her competitions just like Caitlin Cuck, who's in the book as well, also a national champion in cycling in Estonia, but she was the national champion at age 19 or 22 or 23. Orla is now in her 30s and competing against 
those athletes in their early 20s with all that fire and enthusiasm that we, you know, that we, we often have at that age. But with, with Orla, it was being able to reduce inflammation and get rid of that soreness. And so she was able to just train so much more frequently and recover faster and get back out there on the bike and push herself. And now she's doing heavy deadlifts and all this weight training and all this other form of exercise. And she's been completely powered by plants for years now and and gives a lot of credit to that as far as fueling her championship lifestyle. And I think she's just someone who's uh, such an inspiration and and her story uh, goes into more detail in the book. And I think people will see why uh, she's someone that, you know, resonated with you and, and completely turned her life around completely 180, becoming the best version of herself because of diet and her commitment to treating her body like a pro athlete. And then you take Josh Lajani, who is just such a wonderful guy. Here's a guy who had no business being an endurance runner. He was a college football player and a big guy too. I mean, a real big, big guy, like a lineman, not like a running back or quarterback, but he's six foot three and was 320 pounds as a football player and growing up in the deep South in Louisiana. But then he hurt his back, like you mentioned. He hurt his back and his career was over. He went back home to the bayou, went back home to Louisiana with his family and friends and did what a lot of us do when we get hurt or when we're depressed or when our career is over. And he started drinking and eating and eating the worst kind of food, just tons of animal protein, tons of processed foods, lots of alcohol. And he ballooned up to 420 pounds. And then he got inspired by his wife. And for Lent, decided to give up meat. He just randomly came across a book by Scott Jurek. And of all types of sports to be inspired by, ultra running was something that resonated with a 420-pound guy, not like throwing a shot put or a hammer or, you know, uh, powerlifting or, or, or Olympic lifting or, you know, something for a really big guy. But he was inspired. And so he removed meat from his diet and learned about Scott and removed all animal products from his diet. And weight just started to come off and come off and come off. And he started jogging. He started running on a treadmill. He started moving. And he eventually ran a 10K. And it took him hours to do it. This is the same time people can finish a marathon. He was running 6.2 miles. But he at that time still weighed, I think, 385 pounds or so. And, and and he would he would later lose another hundred pounds and shave an hour off his 10k and he would start running 50ks and he would win one and he would run run a hundred mile race and finish like second or third. And here's a guy who was morbidly obese, was depressed, was addicted to animal protein and alcohol, and didn't have, I mean, he was young too, in his tw- early 20s, didn't have a very bright future. And he completely transformed his life, dropped 240 pounds. He weighs less than I do now, and he's three inches taller than me, 180 pounds, went on to be a champion ultra runner. And my favorite part, my favorite part is that he helped his family lose a thousand pounds because his family, they were all morbidly obese. They were all, I mean, it's almost like a cliche thing. You, you watch like the Beverly Hillbillies and, you know, the cliche of the Southern states in the US eating squirrel and roadkill. And, but that's the, really the kind of food that he was eating. He was eating rabbit and squirrel and this kind of stuff. And he's from the swamplands in Louisiana and, and he has a, you know, bit of a thick accent and he's, he's so proud of where he's from. And he was able to go back home after this incredible transformation and inspire his friends from school 
and help them lose 100 pounds, help his family each lose one or 200 pounds for 1,000 pounds combined, and change the lives of the most important people in his life. And he went on to write a book and tour, and he's been on the Rich Roll podcast like three or four times. And he's just been such an inspirational figure because you think we're all athletes in, in some form. We can all identify as someone who is active and has some sort of interest in, in movement or in exercise in some, in some form. And that could even be dance or gardening or hiking or anything. But for a transformation like that to transpire, uh, that gives hope to anybody that even if you are obese or injured or, or you have some sort of obstacles, you, know, you can overcome those. Uh, just like Orla did and just like Dotsie did, just like Laura Klein did and, and John Joseph did, whether it was drug abuse or obesity or low self-esteem, and then adopt a plant-based diet, bring that positive fuel in, get rid of a dietary cholesterol, the high levels of saturated fat, animal protein, focusing on your nutrition, focusing on positive mental attitude and becoming you know, a great version of yourself. That's what a plant-based diet plus exercise did for those individuals. And those are some of my favorite stories too. Wow, a thousand pounds in your family is... Um... Quite extraordinary. Oh, that's imagine what that does for for generations, for your, you know, for your your parents, for your siblings, for their offspring. Like this is a generational change that he was able to elicit within his own family. I mean, he came from those kind of genetics and background and eating patterns and habits, and he was able to change that. He and his wife were able to change that and inspire those around them. They're just going to have a longer, happier life together, and that's it's so cool to hear that. It also, something about, cool about Jazz is like his change wasn't some crazy wake up moment. I mean, he, it started by, he just wanted to go to the gym. He was feeling out of shape and not good. And he just started by going back to the gym with a friend and doing some old college football exercises. And I just think someone who is in that position, it just seems like such an avalanche of weight you need to lose and, and to get that strength back. But like, that's how it started. He didn't have some grand, huge vision about winning ultra marathons like he eventually went on to do. He started just with the next step, which was go to the gym and start moving. And then it turned into running and then it turned into giving up animal products. And, you know, so like, I think that's a really interesting message for people to, to listen to. We talk about all these stories, these amazing accomplishments from people, but many of these athletes, like we've said, they weren't doing this their whole lives and they did and then got out of shape, but they came back with, it started with a, with a single step, right? To use a cliche, this journey of a thousand miles begins with a, with a single step. And I think that's really important. I experienced that in my own life. That's when I go through phases and get out of fitness, it's overwhelming to imagine getting back to it because you see what strength you don't have anymore. And you think, man, like how, like how many months is it going to take me to get back there? But the only way that you do is by, is by taking that very next step. So I, I think people can hopefully take that and, and do something with it. I resonate so deeply with that because in more recently, because I do find myself in phases, really wanting to be super fit or having different goals, whether it's being more aerobically fit or whether it's being more muscular, whatever it is. And I go through different phases. But most recently, before my little daughter was born, I had this, I don't know, some sort of calling to do an extended juice fast. And don't know where it came from, but I just it was just like hammering away at me like, Nick, 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 do this, do this, do this. So I kind of surrendered to it and went, all right, I'm going to do this, this juice fast, whether it's a day or 30 days. I don't know. Let's see what happens. I ended up going for 30 days just on juice. And First of all, what was fascinating was, and this is probably too much information, but no joke, on day 30, I was still having multiple bowel movements a day. Like we, from the, from our past mistakes, like a 19-year-old smashing Musashi protein drinks and stuff like this, 
I'm sure I had all sorts of rubbish lodged in my large intestine, which had to get cleared out. But what I did find was, obviously, that's a very catabolic protocol or diet to do, and I lost a lot of weight. And so I found myself around the time that my daughter was born going, all right, let's do it again. Let's rebuild, you know, and looking in the mirror thinking, God, how am I going to get back there? You know, I was like 59 kilos, super lean. Like I get catabolic very quickly. It's just my body type, right? I'm that classic ectomorph, ectomeso body type. And I'm never, well, actually, I'm always amazed that on this specific diet, if you just have a balanced diet and you're consistent with your actions every day, whether it's exercise, what you're eating, et cetera, the results come. You know, like it's been 12 weeks and I have put on almost 30 pounds and none of it, well, maybe a tiny bit is is body fat, but it's mostly muscle. And I'm a completely different person. And that really, the bulk of that change happened in the first, say, eight weeks. So no matter where anyone is right now, you literally are just a couple of steps away from that tipping point that can totally change your life. And it's when you experience that, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because you do want to kind of shout from the rooftops about this lifestyle and kind of, you know, I've gone through phases of wanting to convert people. Um, and I have to be very mindful of how I approach that because you can really alienate people. And it's easy to forget that, you know, all three of us ate animal products at one stage right? And it's important to remind people like, hey, that's how I used to eat too. You know, I know how you feel. That's exactly what I used to be like. Have you gone through phases where you've wanted to literally like try and convert every single person and it's backfired on you? Like, (laughs) I'm curious. You know, like I never really have, like I said, I I didn't have the resonance with the activism side of being vegetarian or vegan. In some weird way, it turned me off. Like people telling me what they thought I should do and telling me I was wrong for, you know, like I, I would get a a flyer at a college campus and they'd hand it out. And like, I don't know, like I would, I would be moved by it. It actually would influence me. But part of me like just didn't want to be told that I was doing it wrong. And that I didn't want to join that crowd. And I thought you had to join that crowd if you started eating this way. So I've always sort of had this fear of like becoming that. Not that I think it's a bad thing. I think it's an important kind of role in this movement. And, you know, I'm glad those people do their thing. It just for me, like never, it was just this thing. I didn't want to become that. And I thought I might have to. So I, I've always kind of defaulted to this. When I do get excited about changing people, the way I want to do it is by just being an example of of what happens. Like we talk about Josh Ajani. I mean, there's so much power in his story to transform his family. And he didn't have to go. I'm, I'm sure he still had to make the pitch. But from where he got, you know, there's so much evidence. It's like, wow, like this guy who I know well or have a lot of the same genes as, this worked for him. Like, you know, what if it could work for me? And I think going back to that idea of like starting with this single step thing, to me, when you take that single step, that's the moment you become an athlete. Is it, right? You don't have to have achieved anything. You don't have to have run a marathon, qualified for Boston, run an ultra marathon, put on 100 pounds of muscle like Robert has. You don't have to do any of that. As soon as you have this direction and purpose with that you're going for with your health, and I guess I guess an athlete, you know, we're talking about the physical thing, so it's it's not just making the small change in your diet, although that's certainly commendable, and that that starts to move you in the right direction. But I'm talking about like as soon as you start taking some step towards some kind of fitness endeavor, you become an athlete. And I think to me, I mean, we just talked about these stories like that, that is so exciting to people. We, we hear that and it just resonates in this very, very deep way because we all have this sense of what that feels like to be lost in something and then just begin to dig your way out of it. And then even if you can't see the end, even if you don't know where it's going to lead, but that just watching someone and so many movies are based on, right? Rudy is one of my favorite ones. It's just guy just kind of 
clawing his way to the top and you almost feel bad for him. But at the same time, it's just like deeply, deeply inspiring to see someone going for it. Uh, so to me, like, even if you feel like, well, I'm, I'm not going to ever run a marathon and be able to inspire my friends. You don't have to do that. They, they see the, the transformation of you becoming an athlete in my, again, and just in the, in the mindset sense, as soon as you take that step in that direction, uh, people see that they, they start to notice changes in you and your outlook and, and your mindset. And I think, I think that's how you can inspire. And to me, that my favorite, the most effective way to inspire, you don't need to tell anyone, this is what they should do. You just need to, to live it and just like, you know, be living your best life and people will ask you, or they'll notice what you're doing and you know, they'll be curious. And that's always been my approach. It's like, I'm going to be over here publishing all these different tools and ways to do it. And if anyone's curious, like of my friends or family, whatever, like just go to this website where I put everything I'm doing. But I'm not going to tell you that like this is for you and I have the best, you know, I've got it all figured out. It's just like if you want to, if you're interested, here's here's lots and lots of stuff. And I think that's a pretty strong, confident place to come from rather than, I don't know. I think people sense like when, when we're trying, actively trying to convert, I think there's a lot of sense that the person doing the converting is really the one who who needs it, that they're looking for that validation. And that happens. That happens in a lot of things, not just not just diet. It happens in religions and lots of other things. People like we, we have a little bit of insecurity, so we want to get more people in with us so we feel better. So I, I much prefer just to not really exude that and more just kind of like be the example. But uh, I think Robert's a little bit differently in, in his mindset to, to that. Am I right, Robert? Yeah, I, w- I was one of those guys passing out flyers on college campuses. <laughs> yeah, in fact, maybe I handed you one, Matt, when we were at the George Washington University campus together 11 years ago. You know, obviously, I've been really passionate about this lifestyle. And so I, I have been one of those people that I do want to shout it from the rooftops, especially in the early days. And I was giving presentations in schools and giving lectures and talks and put myself on a speaking tour for 15 years and spoke around the world about about compassion and still being able to follow your passion in athletics and in health and in fitness and wellness and achieve all these things, but doing it compassionately and, you know, using expressions like, you know, for you, it may just, it may just be your taste buds for, but for the animal, it's their entire life, you know, and I, I've, I've communicated these messages and they've been at my core and, and center of my belief system. But, but when it comes to creating real change, one thing I've learned along the way is you can't make anyone else change. You can't, we can only change ourselves. You cannot force your, your partner, your spouse, your parents, your children, your, your siblings, your loved ones. You can't make somebody change. You can inspire them. You can inform them. You can educate them. You can, you can lead by example. You can do all these things, but you can't force someone to change. We can only change ourselves. And also one thing I found is that we tend to invest the most energy in trying to change the people that we care about the most, the ones we love the most, because we want something for them or that we want them to believe in the same thing that we do, that we want them on our side. And so we can exert all this energy and time and effort and just expend this incredible amount of resources and everything to try to convert, if you want to say, or or change our loved ones. And it's not always that effective. What we can do instead is, like Matt said, lead by positive example and impact and inspire so many more people, which will then in turn create the result that we're trying to accomplish in the first place, which is either reducing animal suffering or contributing to you know the environment in positive ways or something along those lines. So I have been there where, you know, expending all this energy trying to convince a few people when really 
writing books and making documentaries and writing articles and building websites and, and going on speaking tour and also just, you know, my own physical transformation, you know, my own changing my own body that has inspired all these people over the last 20 years. And I didn't have to have a conversation about that or hand someone a piece of literature or have an argument with them or try to get them to believe what I believe. And I think at the end of the day, I'm in total agreement with Matt, which is why we work well together with this book, is that if you can lead by example, if you can be healthy, happy, and fit, that is the way to inspire people and people will come to you. And on that note, that's exactly how that friend, Josh Lajani's friend, we mentioned in the book, I believe, approached him. He said, man, I see what you're doing. You've lost all this weight. Can you help me? Sure, let's do this together, right? Instead of him going to his friends, hey, man, I see you're still overweight. You're still, you know, you're not with the program, man. Why don't you do what I'm doing? No, 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 other way around. You set the tone, you set the example, and people will come to you. That, that's what Nimai is doing. That's what Tori's doing. That's what all these Natalie Matthews is doing. That's what all these great plant-based athletes are doing. They're setting the example. People are coming to them. And then from there, you can just give them the tools and resources that you have and share your, your first-person experiences. And they can take what they want from that and then apply it to their own lives. Mm, yeah, beautifully said. I've had to, I guess, not arrive at that place, but you know, I was so excited about this when I started feeling the benefits. I did want to talk about it, but I very quickly realized, just like any other time in my life where I've wanted to support someone, yeah, as you said, you can't change anyone. You can't make them change. And you've got to Gandhi it. You've got to be the change, you know? It's a beautiful reminder, and that's not just with diet, it's with everything. But I think the win-win with this lifestyle is that ethical, environmental, physical, like all the benefits that come with it, it is such a win-win. It's such a win-win, and it's sometimes kind of hard to bite your tongue because it is such a win-win on so many levels, but we already are a part of such a big sea change. You know, I, I, I admit openly that back in my paleo days, I had a full arrogance towards veganism, you know, like people's hair and teeth was going to fall out or something, you know? And I can tell you that's not the case. My hair's better than it was when I was <laughs> on previous diets, you know? So I guess my big hope for people listening to this episode is that whether or not you want to be plant-based or you have no desire to be plant-based whatsoever, my hope for you is that you're just inspired to start thinking of yourself as an athlete and start taking some steps. And for me personally, one goal I, what I do have is I do want to become more fit in terms of saying, okay, I'm going to go for a half hour run. I know now if I go for a half hour run, I'm probably going to be pretty sore, right? Because I just don't have the conditioning. And the last time I did a long run was with my son a couple of years ago. It was the city to surf in Sydney. And at the time we lived in Bondi where they finish up. And literally five days before, Leo was like, dad, we should do that. <laughs> like, okay, let's do it. So we entered and it's 14 kilometers and I hadn't run anything <laughs> really for so long, decades probably. And not only did I run it with him, I ran it in barefoot shoes. <laughs> so I had no, no cushioning on running on concrete. By the end of the race, I was literally limping across the line. My son blew me off at the end. <laughs> the last kilometer he was like, see you dad, I'm out of here. But we finished it and we did it in a decent time. But I had a stress fracture in my left foot because I wasn't conditioned and I went around this thing in stupid, I mean, I love barefoot shoes, but doing a, a road race in barefoot shoes and you haven't had any conditioning is really stupid. But I do have goals to get more fit. So your book has inspired me to do that, as did Rich Roll's books and Scott Jurek, 
they inspire me to start looking at this and I haven't done anything about it, but it's in the back of my mind that there's an element of me that can reach a new level of fitness. I want to circle back on something we spoke about at the beginning and that was dispelling myths and And, you know, there's some, we could go on for hours about this stuff, right? But let's just quickly go into some myths here because for me, protein would be the most common one that comes up. And I found for me personally, when I first went plant-based, I was watching it quite closely, you know, like I found myself a bit mindful of it. Oh, am I getting enough protein, et cetera, et cetera. I do not think about that at all. I know that if I'm eating a a balanced whole food plant-based diet, there's really nothing in a packet in our house. We don't have any meat substitutes, Everything comes out of the ground pretty much. I don't have to think about it. And I'm performing well. I'm putting on muscle. It's the last thing in my mind. But you guys devoted a whole chapter in your book to protein for a good reason, because it is a myth that still is out there. What would be your elevator pitch on protein (laughs) on a plant-based diet? Yeah, the shortest answer period is if you reach your calorie goals, you will reach your protein needs. If you reach your true calorie needs are every day, you will reach the amount of protein that your body requires as well. And that is just because of the macronutrient makeup of the food that we eat. That is, if you're getting adequate calories, by default, you're getting the amino acids, the building blocks of protein from all these different types of foods you eat throughout the day. Those all accumulate and add up and you reach your protein needs because our actual protein requirements are not as great as we think. And to help put that in perspective, consider this. Almost every person you've ever met in your life consumes more protein than they need. And yet this is the thing that is marketed the heaviest and is promoted in a way to convince us that we need to consume more of it. Consuming more of something than every person we've ever met already consumes you know, enough of or too much of. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's very few people you've perhaps met in your entire life who have a true protein deficiency. And that only typically happens if you do not have access to proper calories. Maybe you're in a developing country and the food is not there or you're in a food desert somewhere in a developed country. You don't have access to currency or, or money to buy food and or you have some sort of eating disorder. Other than that, as long as your calorie needs are met, your protein needs we met too. One thing to add to there really quick, Robert, is I could see someone hearing that and saying, okay, that's fine. But for an athlete, don't you need more than, than just a typical person? And is that what you just said? Is that actually ringing true for an athlete who, you know, some could correctly argue that you need a little bit more than the average person does. And the thing there is like, first of all, like, yes, if you want to get more protein on a plant-based diet, it's not hard, especially these days. There's plenty of plant-based protein sources you can use to get, you know, protein powders, the fake meats. You can get more if you want. Or you can just load up on the foods that we do more often, which is beans and nuts and seeds and certain grains. But let's just assume, and this is not the case, let's assume you couldn't get quite the amount of protein that you you know, ideally would as an athlete on a plant-based diet. But what about carbohydrate? What about fat? What about sleep, which often improves when you eat a better diet? What about all the micronutrients, all the nutrient density that we talked about earlier, not protein, carbs, and fat to macronutrients, but the 20, 30 common micronutrients that are just so rich and abundant in plant-based diets. Protein is one thing to optimize for, but there are 30 other things that you should also be optimizing for. And my my guess is that even if you coming up short on your protein needs as an athlete, if you were getting way more and, and not coming up short on any of these other things because of your diet, I think you're gonna be a lot, lot better off than the it's just we have this crazy importance we place on protein. So it's 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 sort of two things here. It's not just that people think you can't get enough on a plant-based diet, it's also the amount of importance they place on it completely wrongly. When when as we said, like it's something that I seek to not have too much protein. Like I don't want 
the dangers that come with excessive protein consumption. That's the other side. It's just not the end-all be-all thing, even for an athlete by any means. And in fact, it's something to watch out perhaps and not get too much of. Exactly. And I'm, I'm in the same camp. I personally even weighing over 200 pounds, which I have for five or seven years now, and recently as high as 220 pounds a couple months ago before this book launch, I have not used protein supplements in a decade. And I don't go out of my way at all to consume copious amounts of protein or emphasize protein or, or stress about protein. I don't even think about it. Like you said, you don't even think about it as part of your diet. And And I consume just about 10% of my total calories coming from protein. And I've documented this for weeks at a time, including recently, because we offered some, you know, some online bonuses and stuff with a day in the life routine, a week in the life routine. And and I've, I've tracked this stuff. And the thing that I've said for a long time now is that, and Matt was hinting at this, is that when we super hyper fixate on protein, we we just emphasize protein and focus on it we really deprive ourselves of the more micronutrient-rich complex carbohydrates that bring in all of the vitamins and minerals, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory properties, fiber, water in their whole state, and that is what really helps fuel an athlete. That's your pre-workout, that's your post-workout electrolytes and amino acids, building blocks of protein, it's replenishing glycogen, it is they have uh, nitric oxide as a vasodilator from leafy green vegetables, especially, which helps blood flow and cell nutrition and circulation and all of these great things. And that's one of the messages that we've been saying is that why do we focus on optimizing this one nutrient, this one nutrient that everyone gets enough of and not optimize antioxidant intake or anti-inflammatory properties or sleep or recovery or our mentality or our mental focus or even just optimizing carbohydrates and fats. We, we just focus on this one nutrient and, and, and we give the kind of the history of that in the book, which you probably saw of how that came to be in this, this association with masculinity and post-World Wars and, and the nutrient that's supposed to nourish you know, an entire country or a civilization and build a meal around it and the rise of television and microwaves and TV dinners and, and the family diners and fast food. And typically, you know, during those times, women preparing you know, food at home, will men go out and hunt for it or something like that associated with masculinity. But we've come a long way. I mean, how how masculine is it is it to to consume a, a nutrient that has been known to be you know coming from animal protein, known to be a a class one or class two a carcinogen, known to pack dietary cholesterol, known to limit blood flow, including to you know specific important areas, but it's been known to have an an impact on you know all, all causes of mortality in, in one way or another. And, and it involves taking the life of another individual, you know? And, and to me, that's not super masculine. Masculine is, is more being compassionate and leading with compassion and being a protector, you know, not someone who takes lives, someone who helps save lives and someone who is open to new ideas and not just following this pattern that, you know, people have been doing for a, a long time and, and seeking out something better and being a leader and carving out a new path and all those things. And so, there's a rich history behind protein and the reasons why we're obsessed with it as a society. But Matt and I will be the first to tell you that all these athletes we, we interviewed, I mean, their true foundation of their diet is complex carbohydrates. That's the real fuel. That's the real pre and post-workout material. That's the real anti-inflammatory stuff, the real recovery enhancer. And that's the real ticket. 
you know, that's the theme of this book. And protein is just quite a bit overrated. It's interesting. One of the best parts of the book, I think, is the day in the life of, because it is fascinating to see what other people do, what their routines are like. It's, you know, it's something which I, you know, actually, I looked up what your routine was like, Robert, maybe a year ago, out of interest to see what you're doing. So it's something I'm personally interested in. I like to see what people are doing. And I found that section fascinating because it was actually relatively simple. We're talking about very, very high performing athletes. And I was kind of going through it looking for, even my brain was still kind of scanning a little bit for the protein. There's still a bit of conditioning there, even though I don't even believe it myself. But I still find myself going, oh, what are they, you know, what are they doing? But you'd often read like post-workout nutrition, an orange. <laughs> like not hard, right? And I was just really impressed with um, A Day in the Life of because I'm surprised that stuff's not more out there, right? And I'm really glad you guys did it because even for me, who I'm not a professional athlete, I'm a, I guess, a home athlete, found a lot of confidence reading that because I'm like, wow, I'm doing really good here because I found even my diet was cleaner and healthier than a lot of the professional athletes' diets because I don't have any substitutes in my diet at all. So I thought, wow, I'm doing really well. And coming back to some of those myths, because if you go into a health food shop or a pharmacy and you see this huge display of supplements, it's pretty fair to say that, you know, I think maybe one or 2% of the United States population is plant-based, something, something like that. I think it's pretty small, isn't it? Those supplements weren't made for this small vegan population. They were made for the masses, right? So if we're looking at deficiencies, we have to stop talking about deficiencies in terms of a plant-based diet because if you look at what we're actually getting, what these foods contain in them, when you eat a piece of broccoli, you're just not having fiber. You're getting so much from that one single vegetable. But there is still a lot of fear about plant-based diets and deficiencies. For me personally, never think of it, never will ever again. I feel incredible. I've gone through phases of supplementing and other phases where I'm not, I currently am supplementing. One of the supplements I'm using is creatine because I'm wanting to get strong. And I will say, I feel really good on creatine. And Robert, I know that you can't take creatine. It just doesn't feel good in your body. So supplements, I, I think there's no harm in having, especially if you're using something very clean, like complement that you've made with your core product, your essential product. You deliver them in liquids, which is amazing because you don't have these unnecessary capsules, which I think is a really clever idea, by the way. But let's talk about some of the big ones as well. And I know we've talked about this. We've spoken about this before, B12 on this podcast. But let's talk about B12. It's, it's a biggie, right? Because in the days of MTHFR mutations and blah, 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 B12 has become this big thing. Um, tell us about that because it's going to come up. It's always going to come up. Yeah. So first of all, just sort of a philosophical thing. I think a lot of people make this argument against plant-based diet to say, but, but how can you have a diet that you know, requires a certain amount of supplementation, requires supplementation of one single nutrient specifically, B12. How can you say that that's the most natural diet we should be eating? And my answer is, I used to wonder the same thing, but as, as you see this preponderance of evidence in favor of plant-based diets for long-term health, plant-based diets supplemented with B12 because you, you need to supplement with B12, almost everyone, to survive on a plant-based diet, to thrive on it at least. If all the evidence is showing that a plant-based diet plus some small amount of supplementation is beating all the other diets in terms of longevity and health span. And, you know, the science isn't showing this part yet, but, but that athletes can, can perform for more years, have better years at the very top of their sport with this type of diet. Then like, what do I care if, if someone can argue that it's not natural? Like, I don't, I don't care about that. I care about what the empirical science says is the healthiest way to do it. So that part to me, like 
I guess like once once I got past that, then it was like, well, I'll just take the things that are hardest to get on a plant based diet, and and that's B twelve is the big one. And by the way, like it's not necessarily that fruits and vegetables they're just naturally devoid of that. It's just that our food system is so clean, hygienic now that there's no soil that gets into our system anymore. So it's very easy not to get this soil bacteria that B12 that is produced by soil bacteria. So, you know, like to me, that shouldn't be the hang up. Like what, how can you need to stop it? So I fully admit, like you do need to take B12 in our modern food system if you're going to eat a hundred percent plant-based diet. So there's that. But then when people say like, we made this complement product so that we didn't have to take the full multivitamin, right? Like once I started eating a plant-based diet, I realized, as I've said three times now in this interview, the nutrient density, the richness, the abundance of nutrients that are in a plant-based diet, to me, that completely negates the need for the full-on mega multivitamin that I used to take when I was in college, when I was all into fitness and trying to bulk up. And I thought, well, you know, I'm eating all this stuff, but I have no idea if I'm getting the vitamins because all I'm thinking about is protein, carbohydrates, and fat and making sure I hit my ratios. So you take the big multivitamin, as you said, from those stores, to cover your bases. But as I went plant-based, got much more mindful, realized that diet, these fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds and beans and grains, these things are loaded with so many of the things that are in those multivitamins, and they are in a whole food form, no less, which means come in the package that nature intended to deliver that in, meaning you can absorb it a lot better, much more bioavailable. Why should I do that? So, so let, how about we just take only the things we need? Which for some people, you know, you can you can make it just B12. And if you only take B12, to me, like that's a great argument when someone brings it up and say like, well, how many vitamins do you take? 26? I only take this one. So it's not to me that a plant-based diet needs more supplementation. It's just there's one critical nutrient you need to take. But anyway, so, so there's that. There's D3, there's DHA and EPA. There's argument over whether or not we need these things. Some people probably do, some people probably don't. And you know, you can go a little bit further. You can take a few more things. But to me, you absolutely don't need this, this huge full-spectrum multivitamin if you're getting so many of your calories from whole plant foods. Yeah, it's well said. I actually got this morning some genetic testing back from Nutrition Genome, a company that sent us their testing. And it showed me that for me personally, I actually convert the omega-3s in plant foods to EPA and DHA more effectively than most people, which was, I was super stoked to hear that. It also confirmed a double MTHFR gene mutation and all these other things as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're right. If I have to take one little supplement, B12, spray it under my mouth or whatever it is. And in the process, I'm literally giving myself the best chance to have a very long health span because I think I need to distinguish between lifespan and health span. And you know, unfortunately, you know, I've had multiple people around me pass away recently who really, you know, at that age, it's just too young to go. And I spoke about a study recently and I wish, gosh, I hope you guys have heard of this study because I'm still trying to find it. Simon's pushing for me to send it to him. It was mentioned on a podcast recently where they studied animals, insects, all the different types of life and their gestation periods and the correlation between gestation and lifespan. And they came up with the formula that they could apply to any life form that was accurate within a small percentage of how long the average lifespan of that species should be. But when it came to humans and they applied it, obviously, I think we're, let's say, roughly nine months, 40 weeks roughly of gestation. And if you apply the same formula, we should be living until we're 124, average, right? Which all of a sudden just completely changes the game for me because I'm thinking, okay, well, there's my target. And what diet is going to get me there? Most certainly is plant-based. Will it change over the years? Yes. And maybe in my older years, maybe I will focus on protein a little bit more because of, you know, you can, you can lose muscle mass when you're older, that sort of stuff. 
But ultimately, I feel so comfortable with where I'm at. And one of the other nutrients which comes up a bit is calcium, right? Because supposedly we get that from, from cow's milk. Calcium, though, is so, so abundant in plant foods. I mean, that's such an easy one to dispel, isn't it? Yeah. And also you look at the countries where people have the most hip fractures. They're the countries that consume the most dairy, the most cow's milk. And so there's that connection as well, that that cow's milk may not be this great source of calcium after all. And with most of the world being lactose intolerant and and having this really, quite frankly, kind of bizarre approach that we still breastfeed as adults and breastfeed from another species, which is also, you know, a little bit strange. And what we get from it tends to be carcinogenic or tends to be problematic uh, for our health. We can certainly do better. Cow's milk is meant for baby calf and it's meant to help that that calf grow to be, you know, hundreds of pounds in a year and, and to be you know, potentially a couple thousand pounds. And uh, it's not something that we should be including into our diet. And I think more more people are starting to realize that. It's the same question I asked 25 years ago, right? Remember when I was saying like, yeah, but don't we need milk and don't we need meat? and Don't we need all these things to get bigger and stronger? Because we've had this association with those for a long time, just like protein has been associated with meat for a long time, but that may not be the case. As we go into the future, we may understand, just have a better understanding of human nutrition and where macronutrients come from, where they originate from. Just like this topic with B12 you just talked about, and I don't want people to get the impression that B12 comes from animals because it doesn't. It, you know, it's a bacteria. It doesn't come from plants. It doesn't come from animals either. It's a bacteria that often hangs out on, on meat. It hangs out on red meat. You might find it in the soil. This great PhD author of, I think, like six books in, in Indonesia the, that I, I met when I was on tour. And actually, of all places, I was in Australia when I first met him. Uh, he was saying that, that, yeah, if you consume the food you know, in my country, he was talking about in, in Indonesia, you're going to get more B12 than you will in the United States just because the, the food and water is not quite as clean as it is in the United States or Canada or Australia or some of these other places. And he's an expert on that topic. So that's the same with calcium, the same with protein, the same with B12. We've got to really understand where these, where these things come from. Just like even if we think that beans are a protein food, well, they're mostly carbohydrate, right? They're mostly carbohydrate, but they have higher amount of protein than mango or banana or, or you know, other plant-based foods. But they're still a carbohydrate food, and it's good to be aware of that. So I think calcium is, is part of that. That same, that same myth chain that protein is on and that so many other things that we just don't have an awareness of. And if we can gain awareness of, oh, these are amino acids that are found in food and they come together and, and form this protein and this, this building block and this thing that helps with hormone production and helps repair muscle tissue and all of this stuff, and it just originates in plants, okay, then we can wrap our head around it and say, okay, then I, I get all the protein I need now. I think as well, you know, we have to presence. I know we're having a very physiological discussion, but at the end of the day, we are at a place or time in history where, let's be honest, guys, we can't sustain eating the amount of animals that we're eating right now on the planet. We just can't. And I think it's good to not be too evangelical about things and be mindful of, you know, being the change. But at the same time, sometimes things just have to be said. And I think we have to just say that the course we're on for our environment right now, the destruction we are creating in the world by consuming 8 billion plus animals a year, it's not okay. It's just not. And I'm not trying to shame people who eat meat, but perhaps even just taking steps to just reduce, to replace the breakfast or the lunch and to have one meal a day that has animal protein, whatever it is, or animal products, 
But I think we have to call spade a spade and say that we can't sustain it, right? Something has to shift. And it is books like yours. It's a podcast like this. That is part of that change. And I think that's where I'm becoming more and more comfortable to speak about is not so much being this big outspoken, wearing the shirt, you know, the car sticker, all that sort of stuff. But just when the opportunity arises to say, we, we can't sustain this and we do need to start thinking of other life forms and the planet. If you look at the eight limbs of yoga, one of those is obviously do no harm, you know, and I do try to live a somewhat Vedic lifestyle and do no harm is one that I could know. I couldn't honestly say I was doing no harm for many, many years because I knew I was killing animals to feed myself. And the peace that I found within myself just by stopping doing that has been actually really beautiful. And as a man, you said before, Robert, about being a protector. For me, I think the masculine, the definition of masculine is being strong yet warm, you know, and having this warmth around us. And I, th- I think what we put in our bodies really, really impacts that. So if you're listening to this and you are still consuming animal products, please don't feel like I'm shaming you. I want you to just have a think about what your choices are doing to the planet. And guys, I did it for the first 40 years of my life, 39 years of my life, I ate animal products. So I am not some perfect example of a plant-based person. I did it as well. But I have reached a point where I'm like, wow, how did I do that for so long? Why didn't I see it? And when you do see it, it's like the light switch goes on. And now we're raising a fully plant-based little beautiful girl. And she's divine, so happy. My wife is healthy, flourishing. And I think that's the greatest compliment you can give is to raise a plant-based child. That's the confidence we have in what we're doing. And funny enough, a week ago, I said to Melissa, I'm like, hey, babe, do you realize we're raising a fully vegan baby? (laughs) And she's like, oh, yeah, we are. (laughs) You know, like we just forgot because when you make this lifestyle change, you don't think about it anymore. You know, it's just who you are, unless you are advocating like you guys are for a plant-based diet. It's present in your life a lot because you're talking about it. But for us, it's just the way we eat, you know? Before, we used to be like, hey, what should we take out of the freezer for tomorrow? Is it the pork shoulder or the lamb shoulder? Now it's like, uh, what nuts and seeds are we soaking? What legumes are we soaking? Or what lentils am I sprouting? You know, just a different conversation, (laughs) you know, same routines. But yeah, I think I just wanted to presence that because I I do think we do need to really take a hard look at what we're doing on the planet and we can't sustain it. And this lifestyle is a huge step forward. So I just wanted to presence that. Now I'd like to switch to some rapid fire questions. And we've got two of us on the, or three of us on the episode here. So we'll probably have to keep them really rapid fire to get through them (laughs) because there's a few, but these are traditional questions Melissa loves to ask because her audience loves, loves these particular questions. So I'm going to start with you, Robert. What's your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to? My definition of success is being your true authentic self and having a strong pursuit of happiness and the quest for happiness. And I'm not, I didn't want to just say just happiness is success because we all go ups and downs and ebbs and flows and and we're not always in a happy state. But the pursuit of happiness, I think, is the true definition of success. If you can live a, a happy and fulfilled life then that's important. And to achieve that is doing the things that bring you the most joy and doing the things that contribute to the world around you in the most meaningful ways. So uh, that's, you know, that's important to me, basically to give of myself uh, to help others. And in turn, that actually helps bring me happiness. Beautiful. How about you, Matt? Uh, I'd say for me, success is really about freedom and the ability to 
you know, not necessarily economic freedom, although that can that can be someone's definition of it. But for me, it's it's sort of that freedom within yourself to kind of do what you know is right and true. A lot of people don't have that freedom, and I and I would say that to me is someone who's not successful. They don't have that ability to act in accordance with what they feel is is the way that they should. And to me, that's that's really what it's all about. What do I attribute it to? I don't really know. I think my parents did a really good job of raising me to kind of question the rules and especially to to understand just just how important it was to kind of keep your options open. And this is sort of an external form of freedom. I just grew up dreading like the nine to five job. And I thought there's, there's no way I can do that. I, I need to have the ability to know that when I wake up in a day, I get to make the choice about what I'm going to spend my time on. And of course, it has to be productive, it has to be economically valuable. For me, it was just such a such a lesson I got was that like I need to be in charge of as much as I can of my life. So I made that happen. Yeah, choices. It's interesting. I did interview yesterday with Paul F. Austin on psychedelics, and um, he had a similar answer. And really, it came down to having choices, being able to choose. And I think that's a really nice way to say it. freedom, choices. That is success. And I think that's something Melissa and I have created for ourselves. Didn't always have it, but I do feel truly successful because. This week, next week, I get to choose what I do. You know, for me, luckily, I know what I want to do. I want to sit down and write music. That's what I do. But yeah, it's a beautiful answer. And I think a great way for people to just sit and reflect and how much freedom and how much choice they have in their life. The next question ties into what you said, Robert. What's bringing you the most joy right now? Well, one of the things that brings me a lot of joy is the noise you probably heard in the background, my two little dogs. <laughs> uh, my wife's out of town, so I was having the dogs with me during this interview and they decided to uh, be vocal. But it's that is something, you know, family and and my companion animals uh, I've had for, you know, for years. I've had one of these one of these dogs for 10 years uh, or 11 years, one for five. And that, you know, that brings me joy. I also get joy out of the work that I do. I'm still, it's, it's a much longer conversation. I, I still suffer from some workaholism where I, I'm obsessive compulsive about work, but part of it is because I get so much out of it. Like I had this dream of writing a best-selling book when I was in third grade at eight years old and I worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. And this is my fifth book and it took me 33 years to get here, but I'm here now and there's there's joy as a result of that because I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I wouldn't be here without Matt, you know, helping along the way. I couldn't have achieved this New York Times bestseller, number one international bestseller without Matt working on this project with me. And that brings me joy. I mean, this is, can you imagine something you you spend your entire life working toward and then and finally achieving it? So that brings me joy. And then having that, if you want to determine that as, as success, you know, and, and happiness, uh, which is how I look at success, and then just be able to share that, you know, with my wife and with my family and, and with our dogs and, and with my community, that's important to me. So good. How about you, Matt? Okay. So um, I've got two. One of them is I really like when things change. I love when I'm at a new beginning. And Robert and I worked so hard with this book, especially it's just led up to an absolute sprint in the final, you know, the final month of it was was a rush. And then the final week of it was just complete wall to wall, just interviews, Instagram lives, emailing early. I mean, it was just so crazy. And then it ended. And even if it had just ended there and it was a new beginning, that would be exciting. But the fact that it ended there and we you know, mission accomplished of hitting the New York Times bestseller list. As I guess, like in a way, I'm I'm hesitant to say that because it sounds a little bit shallow. Like the idea that, like, well, um, what's bringing me joy is that I just achieved a goal that I've been going after for a while. And I guess it doesn't sound shallow, but I guess I'm such a firm believer that, like, when we set goals, 
the real purpose of those goals is is not at all to achieve them. It's just the person it makes us. And if we can really untangle happiness from the achievement of that goal and and realize it's all driven by the pursuit of that goal and the progress that that you make towards it. But in the end, if you don't actually get that goal, you can still get 99% of the benefit of of it from just having worked at it. So in that way, I'm like almost hesitant to say that the fact that we actually did achieve it has brought me so much joy, but it truly has. I mean, I've had, I've had that goal. I've written that down in so many journals over the years. I mean, just countless times. And it's been at least 10 years for Robert. I think it's been 30. So it actually do it. It's one of those things where I wake up in the middle of the night and I was having a bunch of you know dreams or something. And I realized that like this and this and this thing that I was dreaming about aren't true. And then I'm like, oh yeah, but the bestseller thing actually is like that one is real. And uh, it's just, that's just how meaningful it was. So that for sure. But like now having done that and succeeded, like this period where I get to design what I'm doing next, that's it's so exciting to be like in between projects and ready. Again, come back to the choice and the freedom thing. What am I going to work on now? And it's just, there's every possibility in front of me. So it's just, it's just a very exciting time. And when I wake up in the mornings, that's like, I'm just excited to be in that phase again. Well, congratulations to you both for hitting that list because I'm a listener as a best-selling author multiple times, um, but hitting New York Times has still eluded her and it's it's hard to do from Australia. I've got to admit, it's, <laughs> it is challenging to do from here, but she's been writing it down for a long time and I no doubt she'll get there, You know, which is why she's on the middle of a, a US media tour for her latest book right now, even though she's got a, a newborn baby. So you know, it's definitely strong for her. What's one thing you're working on right now within yourself that you'd like to improve, Robert? Oh, absolutely. The the thing is my work-life balance. That has been a theme throughout my life, not just in the recent years, but it's really been throughout my entire life. And it's it's a real serious thing. I mean, I, I absolutely am a, a workaholic. Like I need to get checked into uh, therapy or, or counseling. And it, it, it really is a real thing. And the fact that I also suffer from the idea of glamorizing it. I often reference my my 12 and 15 hour work days as something that's like, that's how I identify. And I think a lot of that has to do with, well, it has a lot of things. It goes back to childhood and being a middle child and trying to impress parents and impress coaches as an athlete and try to impress my teachers. And it's just really this idea of trying to impress people all the time. And social media amplifies that and makes it even worse. And I, I've just had this need to always try to impress people yet I don't have this great academic educational background. I don't have a lot of skills. I think I've taken this kind of blue collar mentality of maybe growing up on a farm and certain role models and heroes like Steve Prefontaine that I had that I realized that, well, the one thing that I have is work ethic. The one thing that I can control is my work ethic and I can outwork everybody. Like I, that's, just, that's just how I've identified myself. But at the same time, I've alienated friends and family and relationships. And I've actually forgotten how to have fun sometimes. Even when people have tried to throw a birthday party for me, I'm like, what are you doing? This cuts into my work time. Like I need to be, you know, crushing and hustling every second of the day. And I, and I'm fully aware of it. I can objectively audit myself and evaluate myself. And yet I still fall victim and fall prey to this trap of this cycle of, constantly creating expectations for myself and then struggling to live up to those and achieve those in this workaholic lifestyle that at the end of the day, there's not a lot to show for. Yes, there's things like the New York Times bestseller, there's these titles, but there's a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of stress. 
there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of disappointment, there's a lot of loneliness, isolation, and I'm, I'm becoming more aware of that. And then having serious discussions with some of my best friends in the world and family about things that I need to do in my life to change that and improve that and just be a better partner and better sibling, a better friend. There's a lot of areas of improvement for me. And that's, that's the biggest one for me. And it's, it's so important because it encompasses my entire life. That's an area of constant work for me. Yeah, I appreciate you being honest with that because it is often hard to admit these things. And one thing I personally found really supportive lately was we're taking on a coach for myself, like an accountability coach, because I, I have an entrepreneurial brain. I find it very easy to fill up my time as opposed to sitting down and doing my music. So I'm like, okay, I keep creating this same pattern for myself and repeating it. I need to break this, but I don't want to lean on my, on my wife or friends for accountability. So I just employed a coach and he checks in every day make sure I'm doing what I said I was going to do. And it's surprising when you start paying someone to check in on you, how quickly that can shift things. It's been amazing. And I actually did it through the platform coach.me. And it's really inexpensive. I chose someone that I resonated with. We had an initial setup call and set some goals, set up my work, my days. And um, it's been really, really helpful. So maybe I can offer that little piece of advice. And there's a book I read a long time ago called The Surrender Experiment. And uh, fantastic book. So fascinating. And maybe entering into a time of surrender in your life could be quite interesting too, Robert. I mean, I sound like I'm counseling you now, but... <laughs> hey, that's um, what I need. <laughs> but I, I just, look, I, I thought that was such an interesting book to allow life to come to you as opposed to push it and force it. Matt, something you're trying to, wanting to improve within yourself. I think this has been a theme of my life for the past probably seven, eight years. And I've realized that I, ha- I have this tremendous drive to achieve and kind of achieve personal significance to, to achieve basically so that I am recognized for having achieved. And it's, it's not necessarily needing of external recognition, like even within myself, but it's like to do something for the reason of basically, eventually it comes down to what do other people think of me for having done that? And it became a real problem in my life about uh, five years ago. And it, it really forced me to step away entirely from like the, the blogging and the pot, podcasting and just kind of like remove myself. And like, I just wanted to make the business, all of my business, No Made Athlete. I wanted it to be something that could entirely run without me having to be the, the front man for it or in the spotlight of it, which was very much the opposite from the previous five years. Because before it was all about like, I never knew how much fun it would be to like be the center of attention and be the author and be the speaker and be signing autographs for people and taking pictures like that was like a a crazy high that I got from that kind of stuff. But then it it started to become a problem because it turned into comparing myself to others. And that's a game you can never, ever win because you're going to find someone who's doing something better. And you'll, you'll think you'll obsess over the little part you're losing, no matter how much you're winning. And so I really did an amazing job of like, cutting that out of my life and just going away from it. And and for a couple of years, not needing that. And anytime I, it started to crop up, I would notice it and I would just destroy it and say like, that's going to make you unhappy in the long term. But what's happened now is like with this book success and the being back in the spotlight, doing all these things, and then getting the reward of like getting the, the best-selling author title, I can feel that coming back. I can feel myself like getting the rush from that again. It's like, wow, this is awesome. I, I did that and I'm achieving and now I can go to a family vacation and everyone's there celebrating me for having done this. And I'm at this point, like I said before, this, trying to figure out what to do next. And, and I'm, I'm really trying to figure out like, what is the kind of practice that I can have on a daily basis that, that is my work? Like what kind of work can I do day in, day out that feels deeply meaningful, deeply fulfilling, deeply exciting, but isn't tied to, I have to achieve something in, in 
doing it for it to be worth it or that people need to notice for it to be good. Like I, I want to find that I just, I'm so envious of people who can be writers or artists or runners who just go do it for the sake of doing the activity. And and that's what I, I think, I think I'm missing a whole lot of fulfillment in life from, from not having found that yet. So that's, that's one of many, many things that I'm working on. I'm super into the personal development type stuff. So I've, I've got a whole long list, but that's a big one right now. Yeah. My wife's latest book is actually comparisonitis is what it's called. And we all, we all suffer from that. And I do know my calling. I know my thing. My thing is music. And despite having that, I still suffer from comparisonitis. You know, I mean, I've been successful as a solo artist, but I want more. I, it's like this, I guess that type A in me is, is always seeking more. I want, okay, I've had this many million streams, but I want every song to have that many million streams. And I want to do this tour and that tour. And I'm always you know, plan, I'm always thinking too far ahead. And to be honest, despite knowing my calling and my thing, uh, it really has put me back in terms of my creativity. So comparisonitis, it's a beast, that's for sure. All right, so to wrap up this this interview, I want to do, I know I said rapid fire, we, <laughs> we're going a bit longer, but it's all, you know, we, we try our best to do rapid fire, but this should be pretty quick. I'm going to do some four more questions. Uh, let's pretend you have a magic wand and you can put one book in the curriculum Every single high school around the world, beside your amazing book, The Plant Beast Athlete, which book do you choose, Robert? I'm just going to have to defer back to the book that had a significant impact on me when I was in school. And that was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It changed the way that I interacted with people around me, from my friends to my family to my teachers, my coaches. And it framed the way that I would approach my own life. And, and being empathetic and compassionate. And it taught me all of those things. And I think that, that's another thing I, I forgot to mention when we talk about masculinity was empathy. I think if we can have more empathy and have more compassion and be friendlier and kinder to people, I think that's where it starts, especially when you talk about things like school where people can really use a lot of uplifting during that time when we're growing and when we're needing friends or support and things like that. So that's the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, I would put in the in the school system or whatever curriculum it is to help people uh, try to spread a little more positivity into the world. Yeah, it influenced me. Matt? So there's a Tony Robbins book called Awaken the Giant Within. It's one of his early ones. I'm not saying that's my favorite book. It's not. I've only read it one time. Loved it then. I've got many other books that I think are better, more meaningful. But like, as far as what should go in a curriculum for high school kids, that would be the one. I just, I, I just know so many successful people who say that's the book that turned things around, got them started, made them see that they could be something more than than they were raised to believe they could be. I just think it's it's really an amazing book for that. And I think I do wish every high school kid understood the material in there. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, let's talk about how your day looks. I love, as you know, I said before, seeing how people's routines look, but. A good morning routine is really important for setting up a day. Talk us through each of your routines, your morning routines. How does that look? Yeah, for me, I start the day, you know, I wake up, I got two dogs, I take the dogs outside and get them going and get them fed and get their, their medicine for the older dog and check my email while I'm out there, get some sunshine, get some fruit, get some water, maybe get some hibiscus tea, something like that. But that, that's, that is my routine. You know, I, I get up, I take care of the dogs first. And that's something that actually I, of all people, I learned from the famous IFBB pro bodybuilder, Jay Cutler, who I've, I've been friends with for 20 years. He used to make these 
DVDs where he would get back from a workout. He was the best bodybuilder in the world, you know, competing with Ronnie Coleman at the time. And he would, even though he needed his meal, he would come home and take care of his dogs first. And I always really, really liked that. And he's, he's, you know, as far from vegan as you can get, but he's a big time dog lover. I've, you know, seen his dogs. And I think about that sometimes like, oh yeah, I've got to go eat. I got to go have breakfast. I've got to go do this, but I've got these, uh, these little dogs depending on me and I want to take care of them first. So I take care of the little dogs first. I get some sunshine, get some fresh air, get something to drink, some fruit to start my day. And then I sit down in the office and get to work on, on whatever it is I'm doing that day. Beautiful. I love that. How about you, Matt? Uh, so recently for me, it's been that when I wake up, even before I get out of bed, I do some reading. Uh, and I've, I've always loved reading in that way. It's just like a 30 minutes in the morning or at night or both usually. It's just, I don't know. I just like to feed my mind with stuff that's positive or makes me think or whatever. So recently, I'm kind of back to that. I always start with that. And then I'm a big fan of of a single cup of good homemade pour over coffee, expensive coffee from the local roaster, small batch, light roast. It's just one of those things. I don't know. It just, it just lights my brain up, not in a buzz caffeine way, because I can not have it and I'm fine. I might get a little headache later in the day, but it's not like a craving. It's just a, it's just something I just love. And I love the ritual of making it and spending a lot of time to make one really good cup. It takes long enough and that I wouldn't ever go back and make another. It just would be kind of weird, a lot of work. But so I, I like that and then sort of sit down to write or journal or whatever it is that I'm kind of into at that point. But that coffee, that one cup of coffee really, I don't know, it just kind of makes me sort of celebrate this new day. So that's how it begins. And then I don't really eat much. In the, I've been fooling around with kind of a fasting, intermittent fasting diet. And I'll tend not to eat anything until around noon when I'll have some vegetable juice or something. And then don't start eating till later. So not a lot of eating or calories or anything in the morning. And uh, I really have enjoyed how my energy is as a result of that. I actually think I have more energy as a result of that than I did when I was eating more. Yeah, well, I'm sure your health span we spoke about is can be heavily influenced by those times and not eating. There's enough science there to support all that now. I have a few more, but I'm going to end it here because we're in a good place. And <laughs> and I did say 75-minute interview, but we've gone way over that because honestly, I just really love this and I'm really grateful you guys hung around for a nice long chat. So thank you for your time. I know you guys have a lot happening. Congratulations on hitting New York Times bestseller. And it is something to celebrate. I know what it's like to work towards that. We have personally worked towards that. It's a big thing to do and you should feel really proud of that. And also what I love seeing is a number of plant-based books that are hitting the New York Times bestseller list. That's exciting. Really, really happy to see Dr. Will Bulsiewicz and yourselves and um, all these other books hitting New York Times. It's, it's awesome. So congratulations. My last question to you is, what is something that myself, Melissa, and the audience can do to serve you guys today? Wow. Uh, well, well, first of all, thanks so much for having us on and for this this great lengthy conversation. It's been fantastic and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And really the best way to to serve us or support the work we're doing is to spread the word about our book, The Plant-Based Athlete. It's really the best the best project that we've done. We, we've both written other books and we've each endorsed one another's books over the years, over the past decade. But this is the this is the plant based athlete book. This is the one that in- includes uh, Rich Roll and Scott Jurek and Christine Vardaros, and Megan Duhamel, and everyone. And so, if if the community can get behind this new book, that will open up so many doors for other authors and for other books and for the movement to grow. And it will help hopefully open up doors for our, for us as well for another book. And and we just sincerely appreciate everyone. And and thank you so much to those listening for tuning in and for spending some time with us today. Beautiful. How about you, Matt? 
what I would say is, as much as it's going to sound like kind of a BS, like, yeah, right, this is this is not actually serving you. I would say, like, take that first step that we've been talking about, whether that is in your diet or whether it's in fitness. Maybe you're afraid to call yourself an athlete, but like I said, point yourself in that direction of of some sort of aim or mission and make that your purpose as far as your physical fitness goes. And to me, that's in that moment, you become an athlete. And so I would say, take that step. This doesn't need to be you're going vegan. Like it doesn't have to be that or you're you're running a marathon. It can just be the next step. For me, that's how I went plant-based. It it had nothing to do with, I didn't know what vegan was. I just just wanted to eat less animals because I felt bad about that. So I stopped eating four-legged animals. Here I am four years after that was totally vegan. And now here I am 10 total years. And and my whole life is, you know, just went off in a different direction from that day that I decided I was not going to eat cows and pigs that day. So I just think that's a really valuable thing. And to me, like that does serve us because if, if you people listening to this, you do one of those things and it turns out that it works and you have an experience like Robert or I have had where it does set you off on a new course. I I know for a fact, you're going to end up, you know, enjoying our work, supporting our work, telling people about it. So it's not that I'm being entirely altruistic here because that absolutely would serve us indirectly one day. But, but of course, more important is that our work is helping people and, and the way you can make that happen is by putting it into action instead of just just listening for two hours and not doing anything. That would that would be a tragedy. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show and I wish you all the best with your own personal pursuits. I know you both have things you want to work on. We all do. And I wish you all the best with that. And Melissa and I are here to support you and we really appreciate the work you're doing and just thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. And congratulations on the new baby too. Oh yeah, she's a joy. Thank you. (laughs) Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. Oh man, I, I enjoyed that so much. Obviously because of the length of the interview, you could tell I was having fun and they were having fun too. But can you just feel how much they love this content, how passionate they are about it. It's pretty hard to hide, isn't it? Because it's changed their life and they've seen it transform tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives around the world through their work. And I think what's really exciting is to see books like The Plant-Based Athlete going New York Times bestseller. And whether or not you agree with 100% plant-based diet or not, really it doesn't matter. Because what is important here is that there is a shift taking place right now on planet Earth towards a more compassionate, more kind way of fueling our bodies. And as I said in this episode, it has to happen, guys. It has to happen. We cannot continue the way we are. And I know that sounds preachy, but you just have to look at the facts when it comes to the environment and the way that we are fueling our bodies and the way that the majority of the planet is fueling our bodies with animal-based products. And what that's doing to our beautiful Mother Earth, it's not sustainable. Things do need to change. And it's books like these that are part of this new change on the planet. I'm super excited about it. And obviously, maybe I'm biased, but I'm biased for a good reason. I'm biased because this lifestyle has changed my life. And it's not just about how I feel physically. Yes, there are the performance benefits. I mean, to be honest, from a purely vain perspective, my skin just got so much better when I went plant-based. All of a sudden, I had a lot of my friends saying, what are you doing to your skin? I'm like, "Mm, nothing. I just changed my diet. It was amazing what happened. So there's obviously those really tangible benefits, but then there's the, I guess, the more subtle benefits of this lifestyle. And one of those for me is feeling a more 
spiritual or more deeper connection to my environment, to animals around me. Even when I go for a swim at my local beach and the fish come up to me and they swim around my feet, I just smile. I look at them as my little mates. Whereas before, I looked at them as food, right? And I have such an appreciation for animals now. It's really interesting how this change happens, even though that wasn't the spark for my change. I wasn't doing this initially for health or for environmental or ethical reasons. I did it because I woke up one morning and that was it. I couldn't eat animal products anymore. I just, I don't know, it was bizarre. But the changes are somewhat like meditation, right? When people ask me why meditate, why is it so good? I say, well, you may or you may not notice the benefits straight away. For me personally, it's almost like six months into meditating, I noticed that the books I was reading were changing. My friendship base was kind of changing. The movies I was watching were changing. The things I was doing on the weekend was changing. The foods I was eating were changing. And it sort of sneaks up on you. And you look back now, I've been meditating for 13, 14 years, consistently doing Vedic meditation. And I can't even identify with the person back then. And already just a few years of plant-based eating, it's a very similar effect. The changes really do kind of just sneak up on you, right? Yes, there's the immediate recovery performance benefits that I noticed, but now I feel in my body more comfortable with who I am. I feel more nick, more at peace with the world and my role in this planet and more passionate about everything that I do. So it's hard to explain. It might sound a bit nuts, a bit crazy, but that's just how I feel and I wanted to share that with you. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode. And no matter where you're at right now, the big message of this episode was treat your body like an athlete, like a professional athlete, and take that first step, whatever that is for you. Now, for me, that first step is I'm going to start running. I want to feel what it's like to be in a body that enjoys running because I've never liked it and it always seems to hurt, right? So I want to change that. I want to have that experience of like I'm floating. That's my personal mission. Maybe for you it's weight loss or muscle gain or clearing up your skin or having better digestion or improving your libido or your stamina, whatever it is. Or if it's just ethical, environmental reasons, whatever it is, I'm excited for you to give this a go. If you enjoyed this episode, please do hit the subscribe or the follow button in your favorite podcast app. And come and check out Melissa on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini. She's super generous. She shares amazing content on her Instagram. I'm in awe of how she does it because honestly, I do my best, but she just smokes me when it comes to social media. But come and check me out at I'm Nick Broadhurst. I'm currently in the middle of something called Gems, which is greatest ever in the making. Uh, I was chosen by Instagram to be part of this series, which is super exciting, which means I'll be creating a lot of reels with a lot of cool content. So come and check me out on Instagram at Broadhurst. And for all of today's show notes, head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash 407. There's so much we mentioned in this episode and you can grab all of the links right there. And don't forget today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you, be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others, with animals, be gentle with your environment, be kind and compassionate to yourself and to others. And above all, be love and have a beautiful day. Mwah.